We all interact with like thousands and thousands of websites and providers that collect our data. Maybe hundreds is probably a better number in any given week or year. And as a result, you have to go to each individual one and ask for access to your data, your data to be deleted. There is no like central way to do it. And I know there are services out there that are thinking through this problem and how to make it easier for end users, but the burden is really on the end user. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about hunting down your data and why that can be so difficult. On June 28th, 2018, California's then governor, Jerry Brown, signed into law a piece of legislation called the California Consumer Privacy Act. At the time, this was a major step for data privacy rights in the United States, as it was the first successful statewide effort to bring data privacy rights to the public that mirrored the same data privacy rights enjoyed by Europeans, who were already then covered by the General Data Protection Regulation. And now, that was a lot of legal citation to basically say that beginning in 2020, Californians could, for the first time, request what personal data a company had collected on them. They could know whether their personal data was sold or disclosed and and to whom. They could say no to the sale of that personal data. They could access that personal data. They could request a business to delete personal information about them. And they could be protected from discrimination for exercising these same privacy rights. I'm not going to pretend that these rights are something that everyone has acted on or even knows about. As someone who works in data privacy, who comments on it, who reads these bills, who covers these laws, I must admit that I have yet to request my data from a single company. But today's guest has done that, and we're going to speak to her to not only understand what she learned from her data, but what she learned in the process of requesting her data. Because, you see, asking a company to hand over your data, it isn't easy. Just because we have a law that says your data must be accessible does not mean that there's a unified standard for how to access it. It just means that there's requirements for how long a company can take to respond to you, for example. And and even then, we will learn not every company abides by those restrictions. Today, to help us understand why it is so difficult to see what a company knows about us and why some corporations seem to look at data privacy regulations as um, suggestions, we're speaking with Whitney Merrill, Data Protection Officer and Privacy Counsel at Asana. Whitney, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're quite excited to have you on the show. And we're particularly excited because uh, we can start this episode with a story. And that is that in February of 2021, right? So just a bit over a year ago, you decided, like we said, to assert your data privacy rights under the California Consumer Privacy Act by asking Clubhouse that social listening app that was really popular about a year ago. You asked Clubhouse for the data it had collected on you, even though you did not have an account with Clubhouse. And so I wanted to ask just really broadly here, can you tell us about how that entire process went? 
Yeah, absolutely. So that evening, that day, I had seen some tweets from another individual on Twitter that Clubhouse didn't seem to have a privacy notice up on their site anywhere or that it was broken link. And so, you know, I was kind of curious, well, if there's no privacy notice, like maybe they're not complying with other aspects of privacy laws. And so I decided to say, could I get my data as it relates to um, Clubhouse? Another like important reason why I was kind of interested in this, at the same time, there was a lot of conversation going on about how Clubhouse required individuals to share their entire contact list in order to be able to use Clubhouse or invite somebody into Clubhouse. And I think at that time it was invite only. And so that to me was really concerning because I knew that there were individuals in my network who had my phone number who were on Clubhouse or had invited me specifically to Clubhouse. And so I knew they had my data and I was kind of curious, okay, were they actually keeping it or were they using it just to facilitate invites? And to get that answer, I wanted to get my data. So I made a request directly to the support team at Clubhouse. They're, I think, owned by like a parent company called Alpha Exploration Co. I don't know if that's still true, as well as the privacy at email address at clubhouse.com. And basically didn't receive a bounce back. So it sounded like they landed in an email box that was valid and was hoping to hear some sort of response. Under the California Consumer Privacy Act, you have a certain number of days before you have to respond to say, hey, we've received the request. I believe it's 10 business days where they have to say, hey, we've received your request and we're actioning on it. In addition to that, they have 45 days to respond to my overall request. What ultimately happened was I didn't hear back from them. Not a, we received your request, not a, we're working on it. And so I started giving updates on Twitter and saying, you know, this is my experience. This is what I see is happening. Eventually they did respond. It looks like about 20-ish days after I had made my initial request where they said, hey, we've received it. We're working on it. You know, please give us your clubhouse name so we can locate your account. And I wrote back and I said, you know, Hey, thank you. I'm glad you're looking into this. I actually don't have an account, but I believe that you have my data because I've received invites from Clubhouse. Could you please verify me? Because I assumed that would be the next step. I'm happy to comply with your verification methods, if any. Basically never heard from them. Time passed over a month. I continued to email them and check in. I also tried reaching out to individuals at Clubhouse to say, hey, what's going on with my ticket, my request? They blew past the deadline to provide me my data. And eventually, at some point, they did respond. It came from a Zendesk ticket. So it looks like maybe they upgraded their support triaging. And they said, hey, actually, as a non-user, we now have a verification method. I mean, the story I am piecing together is that between the initial request that I made in February and their response on April 13th, they decided to actually build out procedures to pull this data to respond to my request. And as a person who's dealt with verification procedures for data subject rights, which is generally what we call these types of requests in the privacy community, it's not the easiest of things. You have to put in the work. You know, you can't just say, hey, 
we comply with these laws and then just, you know, not worry about it until something comes in. You actually have to build out procedures and processes to actually respond to these types of requests. And so it looks like they had actually updated their processes and I gave them my phone number or they verified my phone number. I gave them the code that was sent to my phone number. They verified it was me and that I owned the phone. And then ultimately they handed over my data and what they gave to me was the fact that they had my name, that 84 Clubhouse users had shared my phone number with Clubhouse. Wow. Three Clubhouse users actually sent me invitations to that phone number and that there was one privacy request from that phone number in, in the last 90 days, which was myself. And so I think that was really, you know, really, really interesting and surprising because I did not know 84 people with my phone number were on Clubhouse. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's kind of high. <laughs> right. Yeah. I wanted to ask, like you said, you know, through this process, it seemed like they were building out actually the infrastructure to respond to requests. Do we know if that's normal? Like, is that expected that companies don't really have these processes in place until someone goes for it and says, hey, I, I want my data? I think it depends on the company and the maturity of their privacy program. Um, I think a lot of smaller companies probably don't have something because they think, well, if I get a request in, I'll be able to manually handle it. With Clubhouse, you know, you're talking about a very popular social media app with a lot of funding behind it that probably did not have a privacy end of, they probably don't even employer um, at the company but I don't know for sure. Um, And so it's not super surprising to me that they didn't have it together. But I think this also points to what was interesting to me about it was that they didn't even triage it to to try to to attempt some sort of manual process. It kind of fell into a void. And that to me is the scariest thing for companies. And and is, you know, if you're going to say that you comply with a particular law and you, and they said on their privacy notice that eventually got posted or the link got fixed, that they did comply with CCPA and that you could request your data. To me, if you're going to put that in your privacy notice, you absolutely should be doing it or at least have a process to triage it. And for me, that was the biggest red flag was there wasn't even a process to triage and to come up with a solution internally, update me, et cetera. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to jump forward a bit here because I have heard you say that um, you still do this with Clubhouse, right? Like you still request that your data be deleted from them because of the assumption that more people are joining and therefore they still have your number. Am I getting that correct? I think I had probably tweeted something along the lines of like a deletion is a point in time exercise. And because of that, even though they deleted my data after they gave me requests for my data, somebody else will join and potentially share my data with them. And in order for me to continue to make sure that my data is no longer in their possession, I would have to continue to make deletion requests to them. And that is really interesting and kind of problematic with the the right for deletion, right? As if your data is being shared as a result of a feature you have where other people can share other people's information. Is that the right solution? And I think what they were doing with collecting all of these contact phone numbers was basically developing a social web. I never ended up joining Clubhouse despite the three invites sent my way. But my understanding is that when you invited somebody, it would say, hey, these people in your contacts already have 84 friends on Clubhouse. 
So if you went and signed up for Clubhouse and I was in your phone number and you were like, I'm going to share this with Whitney, it was surfacing some sort of piece of information, say 84 of Whitney's friends are already here. And I think they were using that as a way to create growth and excitement about like why you should join the space, because if your friends are already in a space, people want to join. And so I, I understand the perceived value, but the privacy problem is really problematic because a lot of people couldn't choose to not share their entire contact list. They were forcing it to invite users. And so I know now that they've fixed that, that you don't have to share your entire contact list to invite somebody, which is great. I think that's a good first move. But I think the other thing is I would be thinking about if I were them, and and maybe they've changed this over time. I have no idea maybe you should put a retention policy on those phone numbers that you're collecting. Like what is the true value if somebody like phone numbers collected about other people and harvesting all of those, like, do you really need them indefinitely? Is it worth it? Um, And I think that's an internal business decision that they have to make. You know, there's this part of this law, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which has already been amended by the way, and we'll kind of get into that. But there's this part where we're trying to like, looking at solving a problem and it's like, okay, well you can request to delete your data. But like you said already, a deletion is like a point in time and then that data can be recreated, but there's no restriction on retention. And it seems like there's already sort of this split, like, okay, well it's nice that I have these rights, but wouldn't it also be nice if a company was kind of forced to do something that helps protect me rather than just respond to me? Is that kind of how data privacy laws work right now? In the United States, especially, I mean, as we're seeing, you know, the states pass more privacy laws. We just have Connecticut that just passed a privacy law this week. It's very much about having the rights like to access your data, delete your data, point in time exercise, and a little bit less about whether you legally should even be able to collect that data or use the data for a certain purpose. And so this is something where I think the EU is ahead of the United States, not surprising in privacy, is they think about what is the legal basis for processing that data. So every time you collect a new piece of personal data from an end user in, in the EU, you have to think through what is the legal basis for which I'm processing that data? And an example of a legal basis is consent. I have asked the user to provide this information and they have consented to give it to me. What's really interesting about you know, having these different legal bases, another one might be, I have a legal requirement to collect that data and store that data and keep that data, is that it's scoped to the purpose for which you collected it. So if I'm collecting your name and email in order to provision you an account and send you emails, you can't then use that email address or, or the account information for some other purpose beyond to provide the services because that would be unlawful. And so in the EU, there are certain questions that by law, as an employer, you cannot even ask the employee that question. And this generally is around um, sex, gender, race, these special categories of data under GDPR. And I give all this context to say what has come out in basically the law in the EU is they've said asking the question is unlawful because Consent would be the only way you could collect it. And because of the dynamic relationship between the employer and the employee, you can't even ask the question because the employee would feel like they must respond. And so there's no true consent given 
because of the dynamic of the relationship. And I think if the United States thinks about privacy and how we can improve it, it's not just about the individual rights, but it's starting to restrict and think about the ways in which data should be processed. Like if you collect location data by a matter of law, can it be used for any purpose or should it be limited in how it's used and in what ways it's shared or sold, et cetera? I think of location data as a popular example because there's a lot of stuff going on around location data and abortion clinics and, and location data and grinder. And I think it's a, it's a hot topic to uh, think about. You touched on this idea here about in the EU, right? That like there's, there's no way to like give proper full consent when the relationship between an employer and employee. And I just wanted to say like, that's such a lovely, like bleeding edge, nuanced understanding of consent that it's not just, oh, they said yes. Like they said, yes, it's fine. It's okay. And I just kind of wish that like we had that kind of thinking here in the United States where we're taking, we're pushing things and we're understanding like their intersection with like, okay, what realm is the consent in? Um, I don't think we have anything like that from my understanding. And it's just, it's nice to hear nuance. That's the best way I can put it. I'm like, oh, that's a relief. I, I wanted to steer back into these requests, right? That you can make about your data. You did this one with Clubhouse. Have you done this with other companies? I have. I, back when the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, went into effect in January 2020, I sent a whole ton of requests. I was kind of curious who on the first day of of the law being in effect actually had processes to be compliant. And I I have a long thread on Twitter about it. And I think maybe I did 20, 25 different requests from companies. It's something I've done before. And frankly... Part of it is I do this for a living. I'm also curious how other people solve the problem. This is really not like a getcha exercise. Um, it's also an educational exercise for me to understand how are people doing their processes? Have they come up with a clever, interesting solution? How are they responding? What does the market look like for these types of like responses to requests? I find that interesting and it's important for me to know that I think in my, in my field, in my career. So that's that's one self-motivating reason. The second is I was curious. I will tell you what ended up happening with the vast majority of those requests. I didn't follow through. And I think this is part of the problem of having the rights, but them being so it being so decentralized, right? We all interact with like thousands and thousands of websites and providers that collect our data. Maybe hundreds is probably a better number in any given week or year. And as a result, you have to go to each individual one and ask for access to your data, your data to be deleted. There is no like central way to do it. And I know there are services out there that are thinking through this problem and how to make it easier for end users, but the burden is really on the end user and the law pushes the burden to the end user. And ultimately, by the time I started getting these all in and they all had different verification procedures and they all wanted, you know, they were all using different types of forms or responses. Like some you had to log into a portal, others, you know, it was a Zendesk email ticket, like all different ways of interacting that I just got exhausted by it and I didn't have time. 
And I think that is one of the really interesting aspects of this process is like it's onerous on both the company and the end user. And as we mature this, we shouldn't accept that this like ad hoc ask and receive sort of situation is probably where the world should go with these in the next 10 years. I think we should think through a better way, an easier way for everyone involved to kind of manage these types of requests. Yeah, this is a little off track here, but I did want to ask because you brought it up immediately, right? Like, I completely agree, right? Like, I am this untenable, onerous procedure every single time with every different provider. Like, it doesn't work. And I wonder, like, do we have any hypotheses as to why we even thought it would work to begin with? Like, why was this the solution? Something that's focused on, that is so ad hoc and can be implemented in a different way by every single company and every single person. I, I just don't know why we thought like, oh, that's the solution. There it is. That's what we should do. I think probably because it was groundbreaking. You didn't have those rights before. You know, some companies may have done it, but like if you had asked before GDPR, a company for access to your data, they'd be like, you can go into your account. You'd be like, no, but like, I know you have other stuff. What do you have? And they just didn't have to do anything. So just giving the right was a huge win. I think now that we've seen it in practice and how important it is to end users and I think even, you know, to companies, like I think it's great. It's like shows transparency. It gives users control over their data. It's generally a positive thing to do. But now we got to think about, well, what does 2.0 look like? Well, how do we scale it? <laughs> like to use some buzzwords, my, my favorite <laughs> word these days is scale. How does it scale? And I think we're that's the next question with data, you know, one, how do you start to restrict the uses of data generally? And two, how does it scale? And yeah, I think that's hopefully the, the next phase of these types of data subject rights is in addition to just providing that level of access globally, can you do it at scale? <laughs> can I request all the data from all of my major you know, social media companies that I engage with? This is probably a huge question can it scale? Like, is there, do we have a model out there somewhere where we're like, like, I'm trying to think what that model would be, right? It, it might be the companies individually banding together and, you know, the social media company saying, hey, we're the social media block. And if you want to make a request to all of us, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of those, you can do it at this one portal and you get all of it from us. But that's like driven by the companies, right? Or is there a model like legislatively where it's like, we're going to make a portal, like the government's going to make a single portal, and then every company has to sign up for it and abide by it? I just don't. I'm curious. Yeah. Can it scale? Do we have models that show it's it's worked before? I don't know. I mean, there are services out there that collect the information directly from you. And then on your behalf, they make the request to the company. And so there is this like data subject right requests as a service. That's, mm -hmm. that, that's popping up. What I'd like to see is like thinking through technical implementations. How can we create standards that then create some expectations for both the companies and the end users of how to build a solution? So if we all talk on the same set of APIs or we're providing data in a consistent way, right? Where there is a central porter where, where requests can be made and then it's distributed to everyone directly. I think there are lots of different ways to do it, but I think setting out some standards would be a good first step. And then two, you know, I think just continuing to urge people to allow 
a self-serve model is also a big one, right? If you have to request your data via email, it's like a back and forth exchange of verification. You know, larger companies like Twitter, for example, and I built the portal at EA when I was there, you know, you could click to request your data and it would, it would prepare and then you could download it. And I think that's one good step in the right direction. But again, you still have to log in and go to all of these services. And what if the service doesn't have a login? What if it's not even a service on the internet that has your data? They're still subject to the laws. How do they get you your data? I requested my data from LexisNexis and they sent me a paper copy telling me they didn't have any data, not even an email. Huh. Yeah. I was curious. Yeah. Like, when you just brought that up, what if they're not like a service that you have an account with? I'm like, I don't even know how I would request my data from a data broker, right? And like, I'm sure that they would say like, well, we don't have data that pertains to David Reese. You know, they'd be like, we have data that pertains to user ID, blah, blah, blah. But there's nowhere where we say that you are David Reese. However, we do know that you live in SF and you do this and you even host this podcast, da, da, you know? And it seems like it's just a wall, like you can't come against it. When you were talking about Clubhouse, right, they didn't respond in time, right? And I don't think that was unique. I think that there's probably a lot of companies today that wouldn't respond in time. And I wonder, has anyone gotten in trouble for not complying with this law? It's not clear to me if Clubhouse got in trouble because there is no direct public confirmation that Clubhouse had some issues with the California AG, who is the the body that enforces CCPA or did at the time. There was a post by the California AG of some enforcement actions that they had taken. And I'm trying to see if I have the like screenshot of it, but basically they had called out that there was a social media network that was failing to respond to requests for access to their data and data subject rights requests generally, mm-hmm. and that the company had worked to fix the issue and built a process. Now, they didn't name the company, but it sure sounds like Clubhouse. Yeah, um, <laughs> And so I don't know, and I don't know if I'll ever know. Maybe, maybe one day someone at Clubhouse will tell me, and I'm sorry for the the issues I may have caused in, uh, in like requesting, you know, exercising my rights, kind of. I mean, it forced them to be more compliant, hopefully. Yeah. But I don't know if it was me, but a lot of other users also requested their data. So mm-hmm. what could have happened was, you know, Clubhouse got popular. They got more requests than they could previously handle. That's the other situation that could have happened. Maybe they did have a process, but that process didn't scale. And so maybe when the California AG came knocking, they were like, okay, now we actually have to fixed this ASAP and they threw some resources at it. And then I eventually got my data. Not really sure, but that I think is a very plausible end to the story in my mind. (laughs) I wanted to ask that, right? Like if folks had gotten in trouble, because to me on like the outside, it does seem like some companies look at CCPA or as it has been amended, uh, CPRA, I believe is what it's called. We voted on it in California and it was amended. And now there's some changes they look at some of these laws as sort of like suggestions, like it's, oh, it's okay if we, if we do it late, like it's, it's, it's fine. And I kind of wonder like, why, why do some companies see it that way? And I, I think like there's a two-parter here, right? Like one, could it just be plain old irresponsibility, right? Like the easy answer is like, eh, they're bad, right? Um, but then there's also like, I think a different approach here is like, number two is like, is there a problem with the law. And I I mentioned that it was amended because it was amended, I think, 
the year it went into effect, and that's a really fast turnaround. It was, you know, folks were given a year and a half to comply, and then I think six to nine months later, they were told, like, well, it's going to change again. And that feels, I'm not trying to be super sympathetic to, like, companies that don't abide by privacy regulations, but I do understand that changing something that you've just built systems to comply with can be hard. And so, yeah, that's kind of the the two-parter there, the long one, right? It's like, why do some companies think of these as like suggestions? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good question. There are a couple reasons. I think one is a resources problem. If the market says that the chances you'll get in trouble for a privacy violation are so low that like the resources you'd invest in it aren't worth it, then maybe you choose to take that risk, right? If the fine is potentially a million dollars and you make $3 billion a year, you're not so worried if they come at you with a fine because you think, well, it would have cost $10 million to build out this process in, in labor resources and deferred project. So there's that aspect of it. People just don't prioritize it. The second thing is I think especially startups are not incentivized to comply with the law. Just generally as a as a matter of course, I think privacy is one aspect of it, but they're not incentivized to comply with laws because it's growth at all costs. When you are a startup, it's basically grow or die and find your place in the market. And that is your top priority because if you spend the resources, time or energy doing the privacy laws, the other person may or the other company you're competing against may say, nah, I'm not going to, I'm just going to build more resources to create more product features and therefore adopt more users quickly and then squash the competition. And this is incentivized to my knowledge by, you know, VCs who are investing in startups, right? I need you to grow. Like it's really important to put your resources to growing and and getting your customer base and, and doing everything you possibly can, not, hey, slow down, don't build that product feature, add in this extra compliance thing unless it's absolutely needed. And so I think what has to happen is there need to be incentives across the world to get people to prioritize privacy so that it isn't you know, a second thought or something you only do when you become a more mature company. And privacy as it stands right now, right? This upcoming May 25th is the fourth anniversary of GDPR. It's only been four years since we had like a privacy law that basically shook the world. And we're still in the crawling stages of what privacy actually is going to look like. And (laughs) and frankly, this is why I'm very excited to be in this profession. It's going to be absolutely fascinating the next 30 years. And I'm excited to see where it goes. But I think we're still learning and people are still learning and figuring out where it fits in. You know, no one says, I mean, there are some people out there and they go to jail. But if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. (laughs) And I'm not saying that that's like the right solution necessarily for privacy, right? You don't do privacy, you go to jail, but that is a big enough incentive for even of the smallest of companies to make sure that they're doing their accounting, their books correctly so that they don't get in trouble and so that they don't go to jail. And so what are going to be the incentives for privacy in order for it to be prioritized? It may be regulation. It may be enforcement. We are seeing time and time again, the Federal Trade Commission and European regulators fining large companies like Facebook and Facebook continuing to like do things their their own merry way. And everyone says, well, that's because the fine of Facebook is like so tiny. It's so little of their money. And what you're starting to see in the FTC now is they're actually 
telling companies that when they violate privacy, they need to delete the data. They need to delete the algorithm. And I think those types of injunctions, right, either getting rid of data or deleting an algorithm or controlling the behavior of the company is actually extremely powerful and in some ways more powerful than finding a company because you can find somebody and say, don't do it again. But it's very different if you say to them, well, you don't get to keep any of the stuff that you previously collected because of your bad behavior. That to me seems like a really big incentive for smaller companies to make sure that they're complying because if they do get in trouble in the future, it's not like they can continue to benefit from violating the law. So that's one. It's it's an incentives game. And I think a maturity of privacy, like as it becomes a bigger thing and more normalized, standardized, et cetera. I mean, we're dying for privacy professionals. So anyone listening, if you want to get into a field, there's lots of room for privacy, please. Lots of interesting jobs out there. I highly encourage people to come into the privacy field because we need talent. The second part of your question, it was a why did we amend and how hard is it for companies to comply? I think that's absolutely true. Privacy is changing monthly. I mean, not a day. I mean, if you talk to any privacy professional who's practicing in a company or at a law firm or even as a regulator, I mean, there's a new law passed every year in privacy. The laws are being changed and interpreted differently. I mean, just this year, we have Utah and Connecticut that have passed laws. Last year, we had Colorado and Virginia state laws. Now, they're all kind of a little bit similar, but that asks, you have to ask yourself the question, how do I comply with them all? And the answer is you have to look, I think, to look really forward looking. What does privacy look like in 10 years and how do I get there? Because if you try to do a very region-specific compliance exercise. And I'm not saying don't comply with those regions, but if you think, oh, well, I'm only going to give data subject rights to people in Colorado, Virginia, Utah, and California in the United States, then when another state passes, you have to update your procedures, you have to update the way you do things, everything to, to comply with that. And so what you ultimately see is a lot of companies giving these data subject rights to everyone. They just say globally, we just will give it to you. We'll honor it because it's just way easier because they don't have to update it because that's where we're going. Everyone's going to eventually have some sort of right to get access to their data or have their data erased to the extent that it's allowed. So you have to just build for the future. Otherwise, you're gonna, it's going to be a lot of thrash internally. And I think about this all the time because everyone sprinted. It was like, a giant sprint to get to GDPR. Okay, we got to comply with GDPR on May 25th, 2018. It was like, we were all running towards that date. And then CCPA was the next big one. We're like, we got to run towards CCPA. We got to make sure we comply. And everyone sprinted again. And I'm actually worried about burnout in the industry as a result of this, because every time some new law is passed or some new interpretation, everyone's like, we got to sprint there. And the reality is privacy is a marathon. And- We all have to think about how do we build a culture of privacy, do the right thing, get ahead of what the laws are telling us that we shouldn't do. I think we need to be better than that. And we need to be smarter than that. And maybe that's, I mean, I I love privacy and truly believe it's a human right. And so as a result, I think it's, it's actually a better strategic move. And you see companies like Microsoft doing this really well, where they're going, we're going to just anticipate where the law is going and just start doing that. And Microsoft is one of the larger companies doing that at scale. They were one of the first to announce that they honored data subject rights globally, like a couple of years back. 
And then the other thing that they've recently done is there's been a lot of privacy thrash around transfers of data out of the European Union as a result of a court decision called Schrems 2 that basically said that Privacy Shield, the uh, legal mechanism to transfer data legally from the EU to the United States was invalid for not giving proper adequate protections from U.S. surveillance laws and and generally just to not protect the data in a way that they thought was commiserate with laws in the EU, specifically Mm -hmm. the GDPR. So Mm -hmm. because of this, data transfers immediately (laughs) were in question, like how do you transfer data to the United States lawfully? And a transfer of data, just for those listening, means if I, Whitney, access data, you know, sitting in a European server, and I'm employed by a U.S. company, that's a transfer of data. Everyone transfers data. Like, it it just happens. It's the way the internet works. We have to transfer data. A lot of European companies have said, well, because we can't transfer data, despite even new mechanisms that came out, there are other contractual mechanisms, you know, we really want data to be stored in the EU and only accessed in the EU. No transfers of data outside of Europe. The data is only going to live there. This is not a legal requirement. You can still transfer data to the United States using something called the standard contractual clauses and a transfer impact assessment can be done in order to help ensure the protections when data is transferred outside of the European Union to regions like the United States. But more and more, it's just like there's this market demand that says, well, If there's not this transfer, if people are feeling like the data is not protected outside of the EU because they don't have a GDPR-like law, we want the data to never leave. And Microsoft is one of the first to say, hey, we're actually going to provide data localization, which is what it's called when you store data in a region and only, and it doesn't leave. The data is localized to Europe. They do not have a requirement to do that. I think they're looking at it going, this is going to be a long battle and we're going to invest the infrastructure. You know, this is popular for customers. They're probably seeing a lot of demand from their customers for it. And they think, well, we'll build it. We'll invest in it and get ahead so that if one day it comes out about that transfers to the United States are never going to be legal. There was an Austrian decision actually uh, Monday it came out. That said, that transfers to the United States, even with the standard contractual clauses, the current transfer mechanism, you know, there's just, it's never going to be lawful. They're seeing that writing on the wall and they're trying to prepare for it. And I think that's really interesting. Do I think that's the right thing for the internet data localization? I don't. I think it's going to create a really bifurcated way. It also, you know, I think is a larger geopolitical battle about access to data and whose intelligence services have access to data. That's, I could go on a rant for that for a long time. There's there's a whole talk there if somebody wants to do it. Give us a brief version of that. I'm extremely like, I, I would love to know why data localization to you is not like, we shouldn't do it for the future of the internet. I don't think it adequately gives the protections that anyone thinks it's giving. I mean, in some in some senses, we don't want region to go to certain types of regions where they have residency requirements or backdoor requirements for end-to-end encryption. But to give some more context, in Europe, you can ask for, as a country, a certain legal determination with the EU called adequacy. And it basically is the EU says, you have adequate data protection laws in your country that when data is transferred there, no worries. 
United States does not have adequacy, hence the need for a data transfer mechanism. And a lot of this is born out of the Snowden revelations, um, specifically the use of FISA 702 and Executive Order 12333 to collect all sorts of data. And so because <laughs> this is like... <laughs> I'm going somewhat on like a real tangent here. This is great. great. I love all of this. (laughs) Um, So the European Union has said that a country, specifically, I'll give one example, Israel, has adequacy. They say if data is transferred to Israel, they have adequate protections that deem it okay to transfer the data without additional protections. In the United States, there is no adequacy you have to use these other contractual mechanisms, but they're still pushing back saying that's not enough because of these intelligence laws. And they're actually pushing for the United States to change their intelligence laws as a result. Israel has a pretty powerful, to my knowledge, intelligence regime. Yeah. Why is Israel adequate given their intelligence situations and the United mm-hmm. States is not? That to me is like the big question. I think people ask that all the time. And only after the recent massacre of of the Ukrainian people by by Russia did the data protection authorities in the EU say, hey, you should really think if uh, transfers to Russia are currently lawful right now. I I can't remember which data protection authority said that. I want to say like Luxembourg or something. Mm -hmm. But and I'm thinking Russia was an adequate place to transfer data for data protection. That seems an interesting conclusion that they've made, but the United States is not. So to me, what this all ends up being is a larger political or geopolitical battle over data. And what they basically want is they want their intelligence agencies (laughs) to get access to that data. If the data is stored and only accessed in the EU, then in order for the U.S. intelligence agencies to get access to that data, they can't just go to the U.S. company. They probably have to go to the authorities in Europe to try to get that data, or at least that's the hope. And then the data is stored there. The intelligence agencies don't have to go to, through the United States court system or even through the United States process to get access to data. So who stores and has control of the data ultimately is like who holds the power. And um, that's what I think this is truly all about in the name of, ironically, privacy. It's fascinating to hear like that's where data localization could go. And it honestly, like it makes a lot of sense. The things you were talking about, like for folks who haven't heard about them, you know, trying to distill it in like the simplest sense, as you were saying, look, data transfers across countries. That's what happens. And we've had laws, like we've had agreements to make those data transfers okay. But with GDPR, it became not okay because GDPR protects data. And the EU was considering, okay, well, like if it gets moved somewhere else, like are the rights still upheld? Like is data still being protected? And when it came to the United States, there is an argument that no, because we have such broad surveillance that is going to ensnare, you know, citizens who are not part of the United States. And and that's a thing that we're still working on. Like, we're still trying to figure it out. The Biden administration, like, I think a couple of weeks ago said, oh, yeah, we've cracked it. We've cracked the nut. We're going to figure it out. But uh, there's a lot of people watching saying, unless what you've cracked is dismantling the surveillance regime in your country, like, it's not going to solve the core problem, which is that... Too many people get spied on. That's kind of the problem. I wanted to steer back into what we were talking about here, which is, you know, privacy rights, uh, kind of zero in as well on, on like CCPA as we understood it. 
and what I'm focusing on here is that like I'm deeply in favor of data privacy laws. Any rights that provide like more opportunities for transparency, all of these things I, I enjoy. I'm in favor of them. I want them to pass. But I struggle sometimes with convincing people as to why these rights are important. Uh, you know, like the actual work of exercising these rights involves a lot of exhaustive and Byzantine and, let's be honest, boring work for a lot of people. And so what I'm asking here then is, what is the value of a public data privacy right if the majority of the public does not use it? Great question. Well, there's a subset of people who do, and that's awesome. And it also creates a secondary effect. If you have to comply with these requests, to delete your data, to access your data. You need to find your data. And so it's forcing companies and organizations to actually map out their data, understand what they have, where they have it, where it's stored. That's a net positive for everyone's security as well, because you can only secure the data you know about. Second, If you have to comply with these requests and you have a complex set of systems, you might think, well, I don't want to have to comply with these requests at scale, potentially forever. So why don't I just hold on to the data only for a short period of time? I'll use it. I'll do what I need. And then when they leave the company or they leave the service, I'll delete the data when I no longer need it. I will put a retention policy because then if they come back and say, hey, do you have my data? We'll say, nope, it's been deleted. And so there's like this secondary effect. And some of the laws specifically require, right, having adequate data retention policies on the data. So there is that requirement. But I think one of the big motivating factors to why people prioritize that work is, you know, pulling the data or deleting the data can be really onerous, especially if you only get maybe one to two a year or one to two a month and you're still doing a manual process. It's really helpful if, you know, you just don't have data anymore to have to respond to those requests, which is a net positive for the end user too. Yeah. It's this like lovely idea of like, you don't have to go through these cumbersome requests of handing over data if you don't have the data. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh, what if we did this? <laughs> yeah. I received a uh, email, I don't know, about six months ago from our friends at Microsoft that I had not logged into OneDrive in two plus years. And that as a result, they were going to delete my account and all data associated with it. And I thought, what is in OneDrive? When did I use OneDrive? What data is in there? I didn't even know about it. I just never logged in and let that delete. And I thought, that's great. I didn't even know that I had data there and here they are deleting it. And that's really, really great. And I think that's another like, byproduct of these laws as well as, you know, the rights is one aspect of it, but there are, it is making companies think about finding their data, figuring out data retention policies, which is just generally a net positive for both privacy and security. Data is not going to be breached if they don't have it. So at least your data won't be. So I think the next step is really hoping that we think about why and how we process data and putting limitations around that. I think one of the interesting things too, you mentioned, how do you even go to a data broker to request your data? The CCPA requires data brokers to register with the state of California. And so the idea is you can actually find them, but there are, I think, hundreds. And like 
each way that you need to contact them is different and the types of data that they have is different. And can they even verify you? Like, how do you control data about your location and verify that you are that person being tracked just by the location data alone? You can't, but you can easily find out who it's associated with, with some extra time. And so maybe that's why location data, and again, it's top of mind for me, needs to be regulated in a special way because we can't exercise our rights around it as easily. And it has such significant potential privacy harms. Yeah. Whitney, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show, for diving deep, right, on things (laughs) that, uh, you know, are interconnected like they are it's it's funny that you know we start talking about ccpa and then suddenly we're talking about a legal decision that came out a couple of years ago and how it's had like multiple ramifications over and over again and that we're still dealing with it like today you know talking Mm -hmm. about cross-border data transfer um thank you again just for like i said really diving in to complex. Yeah, of course. Um, I know for the folks listening, that's a lot of different vocabulary words. And I kind of told it in a bit of a spaghetti way, but it's an interesting time to be in privacy. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the next five to 10 years look like. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on today's show. Thank you. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Alec Muffet about putting Twitter on tour. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's episode was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. <laughs>